Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Greetings, comrades. This is not going to be a happy episode today. I had an interview with uh, the president of our Chamber of Industry and Commerce, who um, also runs uh, the largest private university in the Baltics, uh, Turiba. But, you know, I promised that I would be touching touching modern news and, and current events as they happened if something interesting happened and... Uh, and sadly, sadly, there is um, a certain interesting event that that took place that we found about on August the 1st. It presumably happened a bit before. There were, um, there were three dead. My colleagues, essentially. Orhan Jamal, Alexander Rastorguyev, and Kirill Radchenko. These three journalists were killed murdered in the Central African Republic. And I kind of, you know, uh, think about it as my duty to give them some tribute and to give some clearance and analysis on what's going on, about what, what they were doing there, what really happened, and what the current theories are. Because the more I looked at all this mess, the more I understood that that what's happening just doesn't make any sense and that this is a huge tragedy to all journalism as such. These guys were professional war, war correspondents and experienced professionals, really. Orhan Jamal was uh, 51 at the time, and he's been a war correspondent for over 25 years. He's very famous in, in Russia and in like all of Eastern Europe for his... Um, for his participation in being this war correspondent since forever, basically. He was there in Georgia, in the Russian-Georgian War. He was in Donbass, obviously. He was in Syria, Libya. Uh, he was shot in Libya and survived. He's been in all the hotspots on planet Earth, basically. So he knew what he was doing there, really. Um, but apparently, yeah, and uh, Mr. Rastorguyev, uh, well, he's one of the... One of the biggest names, he was one of the biggest names in Russian documentary movie circles. 
He was a great director and had won many awards. And Radchenko, who was 33, Radchenko was one of those people who worked for worked as a cameraman who just, you know, always was there with Rastorguyev and was... Well, these guys are, are those who filmed basically for opposition news media. They filmed, like, protest actions in Russia. They always knew what was going on. And Arhan Jamal, he was truly, you know, he, he loved war. And it's a weird thing to say, but... um. In one of his last interviews that I watched, because he spoke about he spoke a lot about what was going on in Russia, and he was one of the one of the biggest Putin's critics as well. Um, he, he wrote a book about the Georgian War and about like Ossetia and everything and, and Chechnya too. And one of his statements was that he had basically fallen in love with war in the same way as professional soldiers often do, having difficulty getting back in civilian life. He said that war is freedom in a way, for him, because that um, that human experience that you get in these zones, it's weird. And he's also important, because um, I had communicated with him a bit, and I wanted to get him on the show, because he said that his, his duty as a war correspondent stemmed from the fact that it's it's why people love history, and and he told Echo Moskvi in that interview that he just likes being there where history is made now, and he likes to report on the very bare bones humans, because the war tears everything away. He likes to get these real emotions from people, and he likes to be there when history is made. And he certainly was a professional. Also, yeah, in his in his criticisms against Putin, Jamal often spoke, because yeah, I know most of these three people, I know most about Jamal, but for some Rastorguyev is more famous. Jamal always spoke that there, you know, there really can't be any reforms in Russian Federation that um, it's going to end up violently. And, and he presented a lot of my argu- a lot of the arguments that I that I've given you over over these past few years about what I think is going to happen in Russia. But so these uh, these three men they arrived in the Central African Republic to investigate the activities of uh, the private warfare company Wagner. Hey, those nice mercs, we've mentioned them before. And this this was kind of big, because as I dug deeper into this whole situation, I understood that it was a bit different and a bit deeper than I thought before. So yeah, I apologize for this uh, emotional introduction for this episode. But, you know, when journalists get killed, for me as a representative of this, of this profession, it, it's always sad... And uh, it's never nice to, to, you know, speak about about deaths of um, what I consider to be great professionals, even if I didn't always agree with what they had to say. So this episode is dedicated to these guys, to the men who loved war and who perished by it, obviously. And I'm going to take a look about what happened, why it happened, and all the theories that are going around about who did it and why. And usually this would be the point where in my intro I say, well, sit back and enjoy, but this one's not for enjoying. This one's for understanding, I suppose. And thinking a bit. Anyhow, here we go. So, what actually happened? Alexander Rastorguyev, Orhan Jamal, and Kirill Radchenko arrived in the Central African Republic, C-A-R for short, I'm going to use that onwards, in the 27th of July, uh, this is told us by um, their partners and financiers from uh, 
Center for Control of Investigations. This center is a uh, center of independent journalistic investigations, which is funded by, well, for the most part, by famous Russian businessman Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Yeah, he, he also of the past episode fame. And basically, the guys were hired and sent there, uh, financed, all this was financed by Khodorkovsky, who was now, by the way, funding his own investigation into the matters. But so to take an investigative, uh, make an investigative footage, make a film about um, the, the Russian instructors uh, from the private warfare company Wagner there. Uh, Russians are in Central African Republic. They numbered about 170, approximately. And they're there officially. They uh, serve as instructors. But I presume by this point you could put instructors in quotation marks. And personal guards for the president of the CAR. Because uh, they, they, although CAR is a majority Christian country, they have an aggressive Muslim separatist group, Selenko. At least that's how the Russian media call it, and I won't bother to get Google up for a precise term. Just called Selenko or, or Selenko, whatever. This, uh, this investigation was a kind of their, their collaborative project, and by the point they actually left for the Central African Republic, that investigation had been going on for a few months now. And in a few interviews, Orhan Jamal had already stated that he feels like he's being followed in his home and so that no one could mess up their investigation these three journalists this group didn't know about their going uh, neither to the local powers nor to the Russian embassy nor to the Russian government nothing they went there on tourist visas without proper governmental accreditation then again you know if you go investigate um, Putin's best friends and this Prigozhin's private warfare company Wagner again, who are basically there to get uh, get riches out of everything, then, yeah, it wouldn't make sense for them to actually try to register this, especially as they're working together with, um, with Hodorkovsky. The center, uh, this is the center of the control of investigations. In, in Russian, it makes more sense, but yeah, center, this uh, has given us a lot of information about this in their own press releases, both in their Telegram channel, which I read, and uh, in YouTube, and... Um, Center basically stated that they only asked for aid to one of these peacekeep well, to one of the members of the peacekeeping forces there, uh, United Nations peacekeeping forces, and he was apparently named Martin, and they don't know his surname. Then I quote here, straight from their Telegram channel: "The issues of safety were uh, were among the most prioritized ones. They uh, they communicated with the um, United Nations." operative, and also they discussed the, the more safer routes to where they needed to go. But yeah, about these peacekeepers. The United Nations peacekeepers were entering, and they, they're, they're there in the Central African Republic starting with 2014, to basically stop a civil war that's been going on there for about a decade or more. And although they haven't stopped violence completely, they now control most of the territory of CAR. The press secretary of the mission, this United Nations peacekeeping mission, Vladimir Monteiro, in the 1st August, uh, basically stated that uh, these journalists hadn't informed the United Nations about their arrival, and that the the organization itself, the peacekeeping forces there, 
they they don't do like accreditation of journalists or, or anything in a special way. And again, like like the people in the center state that before arrival, uh, this well person apparently who claimed to be their contact there, this Martin again, who claimed to be from the United Nations peacekeeping forces there, he uh, kind of went for contacts and he was like able they were able to get in touch with him like approximately once every two days. Well, as of as of August the first which was about about a day after the murder of the journalists, the, this whole center hadn't contacted him at all. And it wasn't even clear, was he even informed about the fact that the journalists won't arrive to meet him at all. Then, currently, it's just unknown about this Martin guy, he's just vanished. The chief editor of the center, Andrei Konyakhin, uh, basically stated that he can't talk about this because he is... He's basically now helping the families of the dead. And yeah, they they also just can't contact Martin. By the way, technically Martin exists. He's apparently registered as uh, as part of the French group there. But he's a very shady character, essentially. But yeah, Martin apparently had been the guy who had recruited their driver, their local driver there. And uh, the local journalist on the spot in the Central African Republic, Andri Grotte, in his article basically declared that their driver was is called Bienienu Nduvokama. I'm sorry, again, I'm butchering this. The center states that uh, at least the, the driver exists in the database of French journalists, journalists who work there, uh, where basically they're like, because the French obviously keep uh, contacts in the database of everyone, of their own people, who work in the Central African Republic. So, on the 28th of July... This Nduvokama uh, basically took the investigators to the main base of Russian instructors in the village of Berengo, where, by the way, previously, uh, previously there lived and, you know, was, um, was also buried there the self-declared emperor of Central Africa, uh, Jean Bedel Bokassa, who basically was running the country from 1966 to 1979. Uh, because yeah, in uh, 1980 he was uh, he was put under trial and he was you know accused of um, being a traitor and you know of cannibalism. This village uh, basically uh, is located about 60 kilometers from the capital of CAR Bangui, and this base of Russian instructors and again everywhere uh, everywhere on respe- respectable media uh, these instructors are always in quotation marks. Yeah, this was uh, created there with um, the permit of the United Nations. Technically, the military forces of the Russian Federation are supposed to teach locals how to properly use weaponry and, you know, some battalion-level tactics of the governmental forces who are now fighting against this uh, Selenko uh, separatist group. Instructors basically had set up just right next to Bokassa's grave a bunch of their tents. And, uh, yeah, on, on the Facebook page of the Central African Republic, by the way, the president of the Central African Republic is called Fosten Arkanja Tuadera, uh, there have been some photos, uh, on, you know, about like O'Neill fighting, which these guys, in which these guys are supposed to train also. So at least, you know, they're, they're maybe doing something. And also, you know, on, on his Facebook page, you'll find photographs of um, a president's advisor 
in security details, Valery Zaharov. Yeah, nice, nice, nice advisor, this Mr. Zaharov, obviously such a, such a Central African French name. First off, uh, these guys arrived there in 2014, but um, we found out that these guys were actually from this Wagner Corporation in the 15th of January this year, 2018, when the British analytical agency uh, Stratfor basically first announced with, uh, obviously, full links to their sources that these civil instructors, these uh, instructors sent from Russia, are actually from Wagner. Last time, last time Berengo also showed up in the news in general, uh, according to the local journalists uh, in the end of July, when the wife of this ex-emperor Bokassa uh, actually had written to President Tuadera with the demand to kind of remove the instructors from the village where her husband has been has been buried. This nice cannibal person. Amazing. Rastorguyev, Jamal, and Radchenko, again, were not allowed in Berengo because uh, they were asked there before entering a permit from the Ministry of Defense of CAR. At that point, when they couldn't enter Berengo, the then journalists basically moved to other regions of the Republic, which uh, has been reported in the United Nations report from the 20, 23rd of July about where the Russian instructors have been placed. According to the United Nations data, one of the places where these Russian instructors are you know, dislocated is the town of Sibiu, which is the center of the prefecture of Kimo. This small town is basically on the crossroads of two roads. One drives through Dakar to the north, where the uh, Muslim separatists are uh, located uh, in uh, Kaga Bandoro, and other to the east, to the town of Bambari. In the United Nations report, it is told that in Sibiu are under arms Russian instructors, but in Bambari they are often seen in the columns of the governmental forces. Without this, uh, w- without this support from the governmental forces, Russian columns uh, cannot basically drive through uh, through the territories you know occupied by uh, these Muslim separatists. In the 10th of June, according to the United Nations again, instructors also took part in a military conflict with these with these soldiers from uh, the group called <clears throat> Union for Peace in Central Africa. The center reports that uh, from Sibiu, the journalists were supposed to go to Bambari. There, they were supposed to meet Martin, this mysterious Martin, from the mission of the United Nations. Quote, He was supposed to give us information about the situation with the Russian, uh, Russian military instructors and help us with uh, filming the, the kind of gold mines in Ndassima. That the gold mines in Dasima. This is the fun part where you have to start digging deeper. Some analysis will follow later on, but uh, essentially Ndasima, that's a small place about 50 kilometers north from Bambari, where, is basic, where basically the largest gold reserves in the country are found there. In 2010, for the beginning in the Civil War in Central African Republic, uh, a Canadian company, Axmen, bought, uh, bought the rights to work there and to get the, the kind of uh, mine gold for 25 years. In 2013, the uh, Muslim uh, separatists from the who are basically in opposition to more kind of Christian, still very authoritarian uh, powers in Central African 
Republic uh, from this coalition, Seleka, basically took the took control over this region. But Axemen basically evacuated everyone and stopped stopped to work there. In 2014, Reuters, the, that news agency, wrote that uh, with these that these separatists, uh, you with using very basic tools and methods, get approximately 15, 15 kilograms of gold per month there. 15 kilograms per month, using the most basic techniques ever. According to the data of the United Nations, uh, control over Ndassima, up to this point, still uh, is being held by Muslim units, uh, this very old uh, Alliance for Peace in Central Africa, and National Front of Resurrection of Central African Republic. Yeah, because, you know, uh, Seleka, this main group, has broken uh, about in these parts. But United Nations does not mention any any uh, Russians participating in this this work. I'll get to this because uh, here is what I'm basically translating you from all of my Russian sources, you know, smacked together, and I'll get to what Selik is later on too. But this is not important. Basically, they're uh, they are the guys who supported the previous president of the Central African Republic, and the war has been going on there for a while. But remember this: that there is nothing about this in the United Nations report. First, I want to deal with the hard data, and then analysis will follow. So um, don't worry about that, because this gold mine, I suppose that's, that's the most important thing in this whole story. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Oxman, by the way, up until the very latest period of time, up until right now, right now uh, they were planning to return to the, you know the place where they are qualified and legally allowed to get gold. In um, the December of 2017, in the report for the investors, Oxman wrote that um, their representative had met with the vice vice mayor of Bombari to quote discuss the situation and express the desires of the company to return to the mines. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm basically about some sort of like future meetings or something. No reports. This is the last one. However, in the October 2017, Sergei Lavrov, which is uh, a chief of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Russia, yeah, he met in Sochi with Mr. Tuader, the president of Central African Republic. 
and partially, according to official reports, they discussed <clears throat> immense potential in the partnership uh, in the sphere of acquiring and mining, uh, mining, you know, uh, natural resources. And there, in Central African Republic, at this point, two Russian companies showed up. One of them was uh, kind of a mountain ma- mountain mining group called Lobaya Invest and uh, a security company called Seva Security Service. By this point, French media uh, stated in their own reports that these both groups are tied with our nice, cool friend Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, just to remind you, listen to my Pevetse Wagner episode. There is all about Mr. Prigozhin. Yeah, he also owns the Wagner thing. So, in the 18th of July this year, a French site, AfricaIntelligence.com, that's an investigative journalist site, wrote that um, one of the main goals of these Russian companies is this Ndassim, where our journalists were supposed to go. And this is where the fun begins. In the 30th of July, Rastorguyev, Radchenko, Jemal, and their driver arrived in Sibiu. Anastasia Groshkova, who is an assistant editor of the center, told BBC that by this point, uh, journalists started to have doubts about the trustworthiness of their driver. The thing is that day before, in the 29th of July, uh, the car was stopped by two local cops, and where uh, the journalists were driving uh, at that point in the 29th is, is not kind of clear. But yeah, these two cops basically uh, asked for a bribe. And, you know, their demands were translated by the driver, because um, Jamal uh, spoke Arabic and a bit of English. Rastorguyev only spoke Russian. And, well, Jamal also spoke Russian. He's a Russian citizen from the Caucasus. And, and Rochenko, Rochenko, he uh, also spoke a bit of English and Russian, but none of them spoke French or the local Songu language. I guess I, pr- I hope I pronounced it correctly. But basically, Rochenko, basically, uh, Arabic is what, what some of these uh, Muslim separatist groups also spoke, so uh, apparently Jamal had contacted them, but yeah, none of them spoke French or local languages. According to, to Gorshkoya, the chief editor, Konyakin of the center, was uh, the, basically the chief editor was sure that these corrupt cops were sent to uh, our journalists here specifically by this driver Nduvokama. But the journalists themselves were doubting that at this point and decided, you know, not to cut their ties with the, with the driver. Uh, apparently, they were asked to pay for illegal filming and, you know, they, they had to pay up, up to two, like $200 in cash or something. You know, it's, it's fairly obvious. And, and, but, but this, this role of the driver is not, not clear exactly. Martin seems a much shadier figure. As later, was reported by the Ministry of Communications uh, of CAR in this post, you know, security posts, because they're all, all over the roads. On this security post to Sibiu, uh, the local warriors, the local soldiers, advised journalists not to drive any further because it was already dark. And yeah, uh, sun sets down in the Central African Republic. It set down on the 13th uh, 13th of July uh, at about 6 a.m. But they did not agree to this recommendation. This is according to the official ministry. Again, going into my analysis later on. 
out of this town, the car didn't didn't drive to the east, to the, uh, to the side of Bambari and to the gold mines, but they drove to the north through uh, through a forested road to Dekoa. And nobody understands in the center that sent them, that worked with them, or the Khodorkovsky, why they did this. Uh, the reasons why they moved away from their planned route are completely not uh, not known, because kind of uh, contacts with, uh, at this point, with these three journalists, uh, they, they were impossible, because outside of the cities, in the Central African Republic, there's like no cell phone coverage, no nothing. The road, by the way, which they took with the Russian journalists, it was quite well described by the by the kind of independent journalist and author Philip Kleinfeld. I'm sorry, I'm translating from Russian here. It's just too much, and I need to get this out so fast that I hadn't had time to translate everything, all of my materials from Russian to English in written form. So this is translating as I go because there's just too much, and but this is too urgent, really. So please forgive me that. In uh, 2014, 2014-2015, the peacekeepers of the United Nations from uh, Burundi and Gabon, these guys, uh, these peacekeepers, forced the local women uh, to have sex with them. And apparently, the road of Sibiu Dekoa, even though it has asphalt on it, it has a hard cover, uh, basically, this is one of the less, less safest roads in the Central African Republic. That's how Kleinfield uh describes this. 70 kilometers of beaten asphalt almost completely drives through a tropical forest, and uh, driving through there, there are only like a couple of dozens of, of some tiny villages there. And my next part of this comes from Medusa, which, uh, which are awesome, my awesome nice Russian journalist friends from Riga. Medusa managed to speak with some people who actually had driven this road before. So, Medusa spoke with two people who were moving through this road in April and May, in April and May through this, uh, this year. With the journalist Philip Kleinfeld, obviously, and uh, the kind of uh, elder science worker in the Human Rights Watch, Louis Mage. Both told Medusa that during the day, the road to Decoa is somewhat safe. There are some security posts there, but they are being controlled by the governmental forces, but not these Muslim uh, Muslim soldiers. Both stated that these these uh, rebels from uh, Seleka, which has fallen apart by now, are not uh, not there uh, up until the town of uh, Kara Bandoro, which is found much more north than Dekoa. According to Mage. Uh, during the night, however, this uh, t- this trip because by the road of Sibiu Dekoa is much more dangerous, but still uh, the murder of the three journalists seems strange, quote-unquote, for him. Quote, Myself, I wouldn't drive there in the night, like, at all. You can meet wild animals or, or, or suddenly just accidentally hit someone just walking uh, across the road. Besides that... Oh, there are there are highwaymen on the road, but they just but they usually don't kill anyone. That's how my mage uh, declared this. Neither mage nor Kleinfield uh, couldn't understand why journalists moved away from their uh, planned trip and didn't just drive straight to Bambari. 
Kleinfeld states that the road to Mumbai is like multiple times less dangerous. Mage doesn't consider it to be extremely dangerous, but adds that the road coverage there is even worse than to the road leading north. And as under as stated by the government of CAR, uh, the in the July the the state delegation uh, drove almost to Bombari to check how the reconstructions of the road are are going there. And apparently the clerks, local clerks, were satisfied about this. By now there are certain versions about how exactly they were killed, and it's still there is less understanding about you know, what exactly happened. But that's nothing when you compare it to why. But about how? Well, as their driver, who survived, by the way, which is extra suspicious, and still, how this Nduvokama survived, uh, after about 33 kilometers of the road, they were stopped by 10 armed men from an ambush and opened fire. He managed to somehow hide and survive. In the 31st of July, the mayor of Sibiu, one Andri Depele announced that basically the journalists were ambushed at about 22 or 10 p.m. Their car was apparently stopped and they were shot. Uh, for, they were shot at from the surrounding tropical bushes around the road, and the three journalists apparently died instantly. Some informational agencies, like AFP, announced on the 31st of July that. The Russians first were stopped on one of these um, block posts, as they're called in Russian, but after that killed. The French newspaper Le Monde, on the 1st of August, stated that one of the members of the group were killed instantly, but the two of them were killed a bit later on. And on the 1st of August, uh, the newspaper Parlamis Centralafik, together with announcements with their own like resources there, wrote that journalists were at first uh, dragged uh, out of the cars and uh, they were kidnapped. After that, they were interrogated and then they were killed. Uh, these guys <laughs> these guys were the first ones to publish a photograph of the bodies of Jamal and Rostorguyev with uh, bodily wounds with, with, from the bullets. Without any sources, however, this newspaper... Uh, kind of accused these um, these Selak guys uh, in the murder. In the 2nd of August, uh, the press secretary of the government of Central African Republic, Anj Maxim Kazagi, told Herbeka, uh, which is Russian kind of uh, Russian committee about investigation, that in the night on the road to Dakoa, the journalists were stopped by a group of about 10 people in turbans, which is sort of somehow important because and apparently these guys who stopped them were not locals. These guys apparently were speaking in Arabic and demanded to give and turn over the car to them. One of the journalists uh, started to basically uh, resist. The attackers opened fire, killing that one on the spot, and the two others died from their wounds. Kazagi added that during the nights, this road is full with bandits, robbers, and, and armed dangerous elements. During the same day, the Ministry of the Information, of CAR, uh, kind of uh, made it more clear that uh, basically these guys who attacked them definitely were not speaking neither in French or Sango, which are two of the state languages in Central African Republic. 
The local site, Corbiao News CA, giving their source as the driver, not stating from where uh, the driver's driver's words came from and or his message came from, uh, basically stated that the journalists apparently understood the language of the attackers. And again, this is important because uh, Jamal, he spoke Arabic and Russian and English. Those were the three languages that the journalists who were driving there could understand. Even though uh, they probably should have taken someone who knows French with them. But, um, but again, I'll get to that when we get to the analysis part. And right now, right now we have no idea where is their uh, surviving driver. If even he has managed to survive by this point. Because in the morning of the August the 3rd, the local journalist Andri Grote stated that this driver is uh, under guard in the capital of Central African Republic of Bangui, in basically their national gendarmerie. Parlam Central Afrique, this newspaper, states that this driver basically is now healing himself after being wounded in a hospital in an unknown city. They also promise to post uh, more details from him when he finally gets better. And the final news, which basically just popped up this morning, before recording, uh, in the morning of the 4th of August, the bodies of the journalists were were basically moved from Bangui to Paris. And uh, the uh, kind of temporary, temporary ambassador of Russia to CAR, Viktor Tomakov, stated that uh, they were going to be transferred to Moscow on the 5th of August during the night when all the ceremonies will be held. These are all the facts that we know so far, gathered from multiple sources and slapped together. But now there is much more, because these are the facts about the journalists. But not about the facts why we're there, because... This is where Kristaps puts on stuff that he has gathered from YouTube and from other commentaries on the subject. And this is where we get a bit more depressed, I suppose, than, than we're used to. Because, again, so much information, there just needs to be some, some clarity here. First things first, however, before we begin. I gathered all of this from... A million sources. I've been uh, spending my Friday night just dragging through every possible thing ever about this whole situation, and I basically skipped all over the part about who are the Seleka and why the civil war is going on, because that's not as important, except some commentary which will involve uh, the Russian government's involvement there, but uh, this has been a tough night and I haven't really slept, <laughs> to be honest, but... Um, the fact remains that the Russian news, the Russian mainstream media, when they reported on this, because they were the first guys I watched, what got my attention was that after the deaths of my colleagues there, the mainstream Russian media, not one of them, not RTV1, not the second channel, not the NTV, nobody. Nobody in the mainstream media even mentioned that they were there to investigate the Wagner thing, which was kind of clear by their investors, by their program, by everything, and... Uh, Maria Zaharova, who's uh, often responsible, a politician who's responsible for all the situation, she basically uh, called the center's journalists, their main editor, to uh, to be interrogated. And she stated publicly some sort of all crazy things about how this must have been an instant robbery and how, like, totally it must be crazy, crazy separatists. But we'll get all this to the next part. The thing is that... But when honest, really good journalists get killed like this, that when you know why they were there and you have documentation that proves it, first question pops up. 
well, why didn't they speak about it? Why didn't they say that they were investigating this Wagner thing at all? That got me a bit mad. So that's when I decided to dig deeper using these facts as basis, so... This is from the news. So far, everything that I've told you was from sources with documentation and everything. Everything that I'm about to tell you in the next part, uh, like in the analysis part, it comes from unconfirmed things. Those are all speculations, theories, and sources who do not reveal their, their own source of information. That comes from anonymous sources on YouTube by people who want to hide their names. And they represent various opinions. It's not simple as that, but these were all the facts. When it comes to analysis, well, as usual, I just, you know... I turn on my machine and call some people. Then I ask their opinion. This is what I did. So, take it with a grain of salt, because obviously I cannot guarantee the following to be exactly 100% true. But I truly did my best to do some actual investigations here. So if anyone, you know, asks for the source for my analysis and my thoughts on the whole thing, just give them the Eastern Border. Because sometimes you have to be the primary source for yourself, I suppose. So, to actually understand what happened, uh, first off, and this comes from, um, from Alexander Sotnik, which I probably have spoken about in my Opposition Journalist episode, which is where I released my kind of sources for what's going on. First about the gold, about the golden Prigozhin. As you've heard before in the, the February massacre, or more I, should I better say liquidation of uh, Pevetse Wagner in Syria, Prigozhin was basically using these these men who had nothing better to do because the economy of Russia is crushing down, so they're joining these mercenary groups. Uh, he's using them to gather resources for himself, and this gold mine stuff is very, very kind of lucrative. According to what my sources say, and Alexander Sotnik is one of them, Stepan Demur is other one, because, you know, uh, I can't confirm where they get their stuff, but I can at least give you, give you what I get my stuff. Technically, in Russia, everyone's expecting hyperinflation. And we know this because apparently there has been a deal made by the Central African Republic's government with the Russian government that involves minting platinum investment coins for the Central African Republic. The problem is they're going to be minted in Russia using Russian platinum. And then they'll be traded for the gold in Central African Republic. And you might ask yourself, why not bother doing this kind of, you know, with money or transactions? But this is the thing. Gold is really hard to trace. And when the people who run the economy of a whole country are stockpiling on gold, like Putin's personal friends are trying to stockpile as much gold as they can, then that means they know something. Other fact that we know, surely, uh, this comes from Tsargrad TV, from Dmitry Pronko, is the fact that in July, and this is a fact, uh that in July, the Russian businesses have to pay their taxes. And they have to pay their taxes in rubles. It's like, I, th- I guess it's April in America, but it's July in Russia. So, this year there has been a record amount of dollar sales in the market. Because all the expert companies, they have their deals in dollars. They transfer, like, Russia mostly works in dollars when they export stuff. Uh, they work with yuan, uh, with Chinese, but with the rest of the world, they mostly work in dollars. So these exporting companies like Gazprom, Rosneft, and other ones, 
Essentially, when they sell oil or, or gas, they get paid in dollars, but they have to pay their taxes in rubles. So at one point during July, they have to go to the central banks or to the free market and sell their dollars for rubles. The course of like exchange rate for for ruble right now, ruble to dollar, is 63.79 rubles per dollar. The problem is it's kept artificially low by the Central Bank of Russia and by the high oil prices because ruble is tied to the Russian oil companies. But literally, uh, there was a record low sales, like uh, when these companies in July had to sell off their dollars to get rubles to pay taxes, the amount of dollars that they sold uh, when comparing it to the last year fell by more than 200%. Like, it was 223% or something. It was, like, less than a half of what was last year. Like, a terrible, terrible, terrible loss. Which means that they're keeping up with the dollars. That they're just uh, not selling them. And that they're basically... These Russian companies, these big guys who manipulate with the whole market stuff, they are, instead of selling their dollar reserves to get uh, to pay their taxes... They are instead borrowing money from the banks in rubles and holding on to their dollars. Those guys from their companies are also personal friends of Putin. And this comes from Sotnik himself, and I have no other way to confirm this, but uh, last year they launched two new banknotes in Russia, one for 200 rubles, one for 2,000 rubles. This year they have already um, kind of confirmed the design for a 10,000 ruble banknote, for a 50,000 ruble banknote. And, and like for these huge banknotes, and they will be taking out the smaller coins from circulation, so there will be no, no one or two ruble coins anymore, and they're getting rid of the five and ten ruble banknotes because you can't buy anything for them anyways. Which basically, you know, if you put two and two together, it looks like they are, they are preparing for a situation where ruble is gonna go through a hyperinflation. And we're just keeping up to your foreign currency reserves and liquid gold, because uh, they're trading stuff away, obviously, will keep you afloat. And you'll just be able to just um, steal a lot of money, again, from some population or another. And let me remind you, uh, which I have spoken about before in my previous uh, current events episode, that as the football championship happened in Russia, the World Cup, that they increased the age of the pensions which they did very rapidly. In other countries, essentially, if you're 55 and you're supposed to go into pension when you're 60, then, you know, you still get get to go to pension when you're 60. Uh, the process, like in Estonia, is spread over the period of 20 years. In Russia, it's going to happen in five. So, one other thing that's going to happen in Russia is that we over here in Eastern Europe, as you've heard from my historical shows a lot, we, uh, like, everyone has a countries at home. And everyone grows their own food. And, like, if you have a cow that gives out milk, like, one or two cows or something, you're just a private guy owning two cows, that's that's not considered a form of business, really. You can't tax that. It's just that you can't drink all the milk. If your cow produces 35 liters of milk per day, then you are free to just go to the market and sell the rest off. And that's that that's, that wasn't considered a business in Russia, so it wasn't taxed. That wasn't considered, like, a, a small business or something. Right now, they are intending to tax all these, like, individual farmers, like people with a cow, people with ten chickens or something, living in the countryside, in the vast, vast countryside, let me remind you, of Russia. 
So due to the fact that Russia's agricultural sector and the large farms have has gone to shit lately, and I would I would have said gone downhill, but then I thought about it and understood that uh, gone to shit is is more precise term here. So this is not swearing for nothing. This is swearing with a meaning. You have to understand that eighty percent of all the Russian meat is imported. Secondly, of the meat that they produce, eighty percent again. About 80%, like 79.5 or, or something. Um, just rounding stuff up. It's produced by these kind of small farmer guys who just go to central farmers markets and sell this stuff. Now they're going to get taxed. And while all of this is happening, businesses are closing down, they're increasing their prices and the inflation rates. Well, if Mr. Sotnik is correct, is about to explode. This is about the gold, why the gold should be necessary to the Russian government. Second part, and I'm going to tie this all together, don't worry. Second part is that the Russian government instantly came about with the answer that, oh, it must have been a robbery. Which is one of the theories why the journalists were killed, but if you think about it, robbing a journalist is uh, very stupid, really. Like, killing a journalist is dumb. Because, like, Alexander Nevzorov, one of the one of my more respected Russian journalists, and, like, one of the most respected Russian journalists... And analysts in general stated on his show was that um, you don't kill journalists at random. You just don't, especially in such crime-ridden areas. Sure, the problems there are solved quickly and easily with a round from Kalashnikov, which is his words again. Uh, but those guys who <clears throat> work there as highwaymen, for for example, they know they know they know that it's much much more profitable to throw journalists into a like some dark pit and keep them alive and you know to ask the european guys and the western guys in general you know they have they have all these foundations behind them and they know that we actually value life because uh, over here it's much more expensive than there where life is cheap and life is cheap for everyone and life is often short and miserable especially when a country is driven into a civil war so so they know this, because ha- there haven't been that many murders of journalists in Central African Republic. Instead, in fact, I, I was hard-pressed to find even a single one before. So the fact that it would be a robbery, well, yeah, sure. Uh, they had about $8,000 in cash with them and somewhat expensive uh, filming filming equipment. But you have to take into account that if they were financed by Khodorkovsky, which is a well-known Russian oligarch, and then they could have just gotten so much more money from not killing these people, from, like, keeping keeping a ransom. Because, hey, what are $10,000 for a major uh, major media company? What are $10,000 for people whom you've sent away? I'm pretty sure that uh, that Khodorkovsky and the center were ready to pay these amounts, because... For your everyday citizen, that's okay. But if if you're if you're sending like a really famous, and again I said really, that's that's my code name I suppose. But if you send extremely professional, well-equipped journalists with more than twenty-five years of experience in being war correspondents, they are valuable, and you know that they're gonna get good good material out of there. And even though that material probably would be shown mostly to the West and wouldn't make an impact in Russia, but still, you keep your investment safe. Because $10,000 to save up real professionals is really cheap, if you think about it. It's just, you know, their material will just earn you back that and more. And the guys who do these kidnappings, they also do this because 
if these guys were some small-time, first-time journalists, that would be a different story. It wouldn't have reached the level of outrage it has in these parts. But for Eastern Europe, those guys were like the most massive journalistic celebrities ever. If you have a chance of kidnapping them, then you know you're gonna get all the dosh ever. What gives me some suspicion is that they were killed by men in turbans who apparently uh, spoke neither of the official languages, didn't speak the local languages there, but they did spoke a language that uh, journalists understood. Of course, this is all like speculation because we don't have surefire facts, and what do I know? I live in Latvia instead of uh, instead of Central African Republic, obviously. But yeah, if you think about this, then just the theory of robbery that is so promoted by the Russian media just makes no sense. Because the very fact that we have so, we have so little information here, and by the way, Khodorkovsky now organizes an independent journalistic investigation en masse uh, to go there, and investigate the whole thing, so he had the money to save them, because he's now organizing this investigation, and there will be people driving the Central African Republic... That alone proves that, hey, there's something happened there. But if you think about it from the perspective of some que bono thing, like Cicero would state, then you understand that, hey, uh, any real investigation, because, you know, the central uh, central, uh, attorney offices of Russia are so corrupt that literally nobody expects them to do anything, but any real investigation would be just impossible to create in this war-torn country in the middle of nowhere. And if you have some uh, crazy-ass plans that you don't want to reveal to the public, and if you have a personal hatred towards these professional journalists, then hey, this is the ideal opportunity to which to kill them. And of course, there are the account- there's the counter-argument that this-, this message would have never been heard and stuff like that, but if you think about it, this is the, the place of the perfect murder, which is what angers me the most. Secondly, about this whole situation... The the idea that they just moved away from that they had like no no guards that they moved away from their position that they never met this Martin guy that they trusted this I mean those guys were professionals with twenty five years of experience in surviving even getting shot in Libya so they don't make rookie mistakes you, you don't make rookie mistakes when you become a professional and that just means that they were not just they weren't tricked they were worked with professionally someone led them and the fact that jamal himself reported even being followed in russia kind of gives me the impression that he was very professionally led to this that he was worked worked with in the language of the special services and yeah, again, conspiracy, but still, hey, I don't have any concrete evidence, I just have this this whole circumstance which just blatantly points about this. And and the Russian investigators, the official investigators, are, are just utterly ignoring this obvious thing that, hey, Pevetse Wagner might have just killed them, which is the most obvious explanation, and they're not even mentioning the Pevetse Wagner anywhere, which just adds extra suspicion. And sure, it, it might have been kind of some random locals, but apparently it wasn't random locals. That causes even more confusion, because it weren't any local Muslim separatist guys, at least according to the Central African Republic. They might have been just hired by them, they might have been just tricked by them, forced by them into submission, and the fact that we don't even know about driver currently also, also is a bit crazy. So if you think about it, then... Well, I personally believe that, yes, it was the, the Wagner guys who killed them, 
and the answer of, of for like um there there is this counter argument which is like because I listen to some Russian opposition news sites like Tsargrad and everything everywhere else who are basically guys who yell at the Russian government but they never say anything bad about Putin because they consider Russian government to be like very rib- liberal and controlled by Amer- by American special forces right stuff like that but. They state that the argument is that it couldn't have been uh, the Wagner guys, because this is too obvious, these guys were too famous, so it must have been the West to make Russia look bad, again, just as the same with Skripal argument. But I have a counter-argument to this, because, you see, Wagner guys have less to do with the official army whatsoever, because... This might show, and a lot of people state, that in Russia we are uh, observing some sort of an internal conflict between these oligarch groups surrounding Putin and influencing him a lot. One of these groups is represented by this Prigozhin, who represents the, the, the uh, kind of these mercenaries and these business interests. Another player in the whole game is Shoigu. Shoigu is the Minister of Defense of Russia, and he represents the army interests, because... The army is pissed off that they can't do this by themselves and grab all the profits that way. And if you remember the February episode, and this is another argument often stated by uh, the opposition media in Russia, is that the murder of the Wagner guys, which was basically, uh, there's a theory now going on that it was all set up by the army, that is why they didn't have anti-air support or advanced technologies or whatever. It was a setup because Prigozhin wanted to grab the oil reserves in Syria, but the Russian army, which communicated with the Americans, they gave them false information, and they basically set up the deaths of their own, kind of, because uh, it was from... Basically, it was... Imagine if Marines and, and the army would have uh, hate each other so much that they actually actively would go out of their way to harm each other. Except this involves business interests too, you see. And it, it seems like the fact that all these Wagner guys uh, were killed... That was that was like Shoigu doing his thing, but now now this is some sort of a revenge from the Wagner guys themselves going back to, to kind of uh, hide their interests to hurt Shoigu a bit. Because uh, if you think about it, then the Russians can't actually do a real investigation on this, and everything is just muddled and unclear. So the Prigozhin with his Wagner guys would like to have some bad PR, because he's way less known in the West and in the public than Shoigu, the Minister of Defense of Russia, so that would just be bad PR for Shoigu. In the end, well, uh, it all boils down to the fact that they were killed, and I do not believe that the, the fact that they did some unprofessional things and were just getting in the random ambush, those guys survived in a crazier war zone than in Central Africa. Those guys were professionals. The idea that they made silly rookie mistakes is the most dumbest idea ever. The idea that this wasn't premediated somehow is the dumbest idea ever. The fact that this Martin guy, that they trusted him completely, why did they do that? What? There must be something deeper behind this. Now, I do not know this. What I do know for sure is that three of my colleagues were killed. And the obvious evidence, once again... And even though it's circumstantial, points to our nice friends in the Russian government. Points to the fact that they just found a nice way how to dispose of uncomfortable people. And although this is a public scandal, it's not very widely uh, represented in the West, because you guys might not know about these three guys, but we do, and they're taken very seriously in Russia. But the fact that three journalists are dead because they were 
they're loyal to, loyal to their work and they did their journalistic duty. That's scary and sad. And the fact that there's going to be a multiple in, in, multiple independent investigations, at least that's good. Because I think this event does not get the required attention that it should. Here we can see that the Russian government's changing. They're changing, they're changing in multiple ways. But if my sources are true, this is the beginning of the split of power and kind of the precursor to some massive hyperinflation. Like Alexander Benediktov, uh, the chief editor of Echo Moskvi, says, We will watch over this. I've tried my best to give you the description of what happened and my, well, although limited, analysis of why it did. Sure, I have my own biases and it might have well be just random, but when the fact that it might be just random robbery sounds less reasonable and has way less evidence supporting it, then you have to think about yourself, especially... I've been receiving death threats too, but hey, at least I live in a NATO country. This'll be it for this episode, and if something pops up again, I'll inform you about this. Probably mention it in the future episodes as usual. But yeah, in memoriam, comrades. You did your job. And you have to give some respect to those guys. До свидания, товарищ. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to the western border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our kolkhoz in the great motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.